But there's this element in the world where, because we're so global now, we're, we're you know, ideas and foods spread faster. And what we do is we take it and adopt it to innovate. So how do you balance between disrespecting tradition, losing the cultural aspects and institution elements to balancing growth and innovation and change? Man, that was a rough question. (laughs) Hey, listeners, it's Alex, your host of EOA, Entrepreneurs of Asia, the show where we talk to founders, entrepreneurs, investors, shaping and impacting the startup scene here in Asia. Today, we continue our relevant conversations and have a lot of lessons to share. We are releasing episode 14, but in the backlog, we have already recorded more than 20 episodes and are producing more each week. I am trying my best to keep up as much as possible. Also in the pipeline are a few other concepts and formats for other podcasts that will be introduced seasonally in the coming months, so stay tuned. This episode features an amazing founder, an F&B entrepreneur, Marcus Lau of Table and Apron and Universal Bakehouse. Marcus is a tremendous entrepreneur, and I would urge anyone working or interested in the space of entrepreneurship to learn and listen from him. Marcus presents a very thorough business philosophy and strategy that has allowed him continued success despite the struggles of entrepreneurship that came his way. In this episode, we briefly touch upon his story, discuss diversification versus specialization, how to create value with a soul, artistry and community, scaling craftsmanship, F&B as a team sport, the importance of experience for the restaurant business, finding focus early on, technology in F&B, how restaurants use data, founder conflicts, building culture, food as an institution, food accelerators and stock options for F&B businesses, and much more. This one is a long one, but I guarantee it's worth your time. Let's dive right in. Welcome to the show. How are you? Thank you. Uh, What do we have here in front of me? Well, Alex, what you have in front of you is a turkey, ham, and cheese brioche bun. Um, It's kind of a roll, so we we make a big batch of uh, brioche dough at Universal Big House, and we try and come up with as many different things that you can have as a, as a pastry good as possible. So I, I'm going to do something I usually don't do and take a bite in front of you. Mm, very nice. And this is made here in the bakery, right? Yep. Okay. Exactly. Um, which you started about a year ago? Uh, Universal Big House, yep. Started about exactly a year ago, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, we opened on the 20th of October in 2019. So it's approximately a year now. Mm-hmm. So, uh, if you don't get the theme already, Marcus here is a F and B entrepreneur, and at this point, we've had probably quite a few already on the show. Uh, we had uh, Chai and Zihan who shared his fine dining experience, and then uh, Renyi who shared his their burger joint uh, building empire experience as well. And so, uh, Marcus here has run a restaurant originally called Kitchen Table, right? Started about six years ago. Yeah, 2014. That's yeah. correct. And then eventually it changed into uh, Table and Apron. Yep. And then uh, less than a year ago, you opened uh, a bakery right next to it. Yes. Yeah. And that was called Universal Bake House. Right. So we're about six years in right now. Yeah. So I have to give a lot of props because in general, like people love hearing about you know big, successful, big tech entrepreneurs, valuations of billions and unicorns, right? But I find it more impressive of anyone who could build a business from scratch feed a big team of people for many, many years. And I think we learned that most companies fail within a few years of starting out, right? Mm. Uh, if you think about maybe your friends, do you know anyone that has started the journey and couldn't make it? Um, 
I think I, I've been very fortunate. I've been surrounded by very good friends <laughs> who are in the industry and, you know, who have very strong first principle values when yeah. it comes to going to F&B. Yeah. Um, but it's an industry where it's a very romantic notion where, mm. hey, my dream is to open a cafe or a restaurant and I want to go into it. And they face this unwavering dedication that you, a commitment you need to have yeah. in order to actually, you know, operate and run the, run a space and that, I think I've heard it somewhere before where someone said if you really don't like someone you can encourage them to open a restaurant they <laughs> stuck with it for life yeah. that is well life where they lose all their savings right? yeah <laughs> which probably happens more often than not right exactly yeah so I, I wanted to continue so before we we started this we were talking about how um, you were running both businesses now uh, about a from a year ago you got two companies and back then this was before the pandemic Right. And you had, and I remember visiting when you first opened up, gave us the tour very nicely, huge space for, for bakery, big ambitions. I remember back then you mentioned, you know, you had some ideas of having a very small front for the bakery and then, you know, having a much bigger back to be able to have very high production capacity and thinking about B2B and all those kind of things. Um, but it turns out, I guess things might have changed for the pandemic. And it turns out that, you know, operating table and apron for six years, which was doing really well at what, you know, probably before the pandemic and then and afterwards now you know i think things kind of flipped where you started this business in bakery it kind of took off during the pandemic i guess and it's now supporting the restaurant instead of the other way around yeah um this this was a real surprise for me because um running a restaurant or operate opening and op opening and operating one is as much a marathon than a sprint yeah and which each iteration that we go through with the restaurant, we become more restaurant specialists. Yeah. Uh, we were looking at restaurant sites elsewhere when, it, when we were talking about expansion. Mm -hmm. And it just so happened that Universal Bakehouse, which originally was called Universal Dobby or Laundry. Laundry, yeah. Uh, which was servicing all our aprons, all our linens uh, from the restaurant. Uh, the lady who owned the business retired 40 years, uh, after 40 years uh, in business. And we decided that maybe we, we were forced to consider it because the landlord asked us, would you like to consider this space? Is it the same landlord as a Table and Apron? No, it was a different, different landlord. So you just... Different more of a community-driven thing, right? Yes. You just know each other, and you went there for her business, so then she just kind of asked you. Precisely. Okay. Um, we were hesitant at first. We, we we had no idea what we wanted to do with it. Pretty Nine. big space, right? Yeah, it's the same size as Table and Apron, actually. Roughly how big is that in square feet? Uh, you talk, you're talking about 1,008, okay. 1,800 square feet. Um, the, the, the most natural thing that will occur to you is that if you're running a, a business that you think is successful at five six years down the line i mean that's the natural saying that goes why break something that or why fix something that's not broken, broken? yeah um and that was the natural occurring thought to me was that we're just not on a space mm -hmm. open another restaurant why not mm -hmm. or like expand table and apron if anything okay yeah so you could have expanded it or open another concept would it have been weird right next to each other though if it was another concept yeah, so that was one of the things we, we thought that we would be cannibalizing our mm. concept if we open anything too similar to a full-service restaurant, yeah. which Damansara Kim, this great neighborhood, has become a foodie street right now. It's filled with restaurants. Mm -hmm. um, and we didn't want to be just uh, cannibalizing the community of businesses here, but really enhancing it. So 
um, naturally you would just be knocking the space down and just opening more seating for for our guests mm-hmm. because I mean we we get a lot of reservations in that makes sense actually continuing um, expanding the base if there's but I guess the consideration would be but was there enough demand to kind of do that yeah so I mean we we've had fortunately in in the six years building up to where we are now uh, we do have that demand and I think that there's something also quite special about uh, in making sure that you're still known as that neighborhood restaurant. Yeah, You're not like five minutes away, you can go to just down the road and there's a table apron over there. And <laughs> yeah. then uh, over here, there's another table apron over here. So we like keeping uh, that kind of uh, mm. emotive experience when visiting our, yeah. our own brands. Yeah, I mean, I kind of, well, I kind of appreciate that, but I also kind of lament that because... So I stay, uh, for people who don't know anything about Malaysia or Kuala Lumpur or KL, I stay in Bangsar, which is about 10, 15 minutes down the road, no traffic. Um, people tend to think, you know, Bangsar is this place to go drinking and having fun and love expats, uh, but it's not really a food place. No. Right? Think about the places you would go there to eat. Not really, right? And so I don't have that community place I can go to. You know what I mean? Yeah, uh, I mean there, there's like small bars and stuff, but you know, it's, you're not. I'm not going to be drinking every single day and getting old, right? So, and uh, it's kind of like that feel in Europe of that community butcher, that community bakery, that community, and it's just extremely high quality craftsmanship of great baked goods. And then you, you know, see the same people going there for a few decades, right? And I, I guess because of the nature of Kuala Lumpur, it's kind of spaced out and. At least for me in my area, I don't have that. So yeah, yeah. Um, opening a place in Malaysia or in the Klang Valley, at least, is it's a very interesting dynamic because, you know, like you say, Bangsa is only ten minutes away, but the rent rates are completely different. Insane. Yeah. Um, and unlike in you know in metropolitan cities like London or Singapore, where in a CBD itself you'd have millions, just very high density. Very high dense. Yeah. Um, in Malay, in Klang Valley, that's yeah. not really the case. So you're very much reliant on the community that's there. Um, for a bit of background about us is that we're, we're an independent restaurant in the sense that, um, everything we own, the brick and mortar place, everything that's invested in it was solely from building our capital from scratch rather mm-hmm. than having investors come in. So, um, because we are not as, um, cash rich, we have to be very deliberate in the choices we make in mm-hmm. terms of locations. Bangsa was one that was the case where if your sales didn't meet the kind of, no. you know, expectation that you had and you'd get swamped by your overheads and you probably won't. Let's, last let's long talk long. some numbers. Like what, what would be like a floor rental ground space retail? Um, if you're, you're, if you're talking about, um, the Talawi area, you're looking yeah. at about 20k, 20k right? on average. And I guess a convert that's roughly about 5,000 plus USD, uh, I think, yeah, around yeah, there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and then yeah. it's just for a small space, probably. Correct. And, and, and need, not very high dense. It's not like yeah, you're in not, New York. Correct. You know? Yeah. 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 So, uh, and I guess yeah, it'd be a very questionable, you know, business exercise to think about your product and like the type of foot traffic there, if it would even make sense. Right. Mm. So there's a lot, definitely a lot of high risk, especially if you're not coming from a well, uh, cash rich business, right? Correct. And I think what happens is a lot of guys who are cash rich probably will go there and then probably close within one or two years, which is where we see high turnover a lot, right? 
yeah, yeah. You find a place in Bangsa that's been around for some yeah. time and you only find that there's a few that have been there yeah. for, for quite quite a number of years. Yeah. Um, but going back to this space, so um, Universal Big House, which is currently next door to Tape and Apron, when we initially thought of opening a restaurant uh, just next door and uh, one of my, ma- my managing partners, so there's two partners in the business. I'm the founder of the restaurant mm-hmm. and... Uh, we have another managing partner who joined us, Asia. I think you met her. Yes, just now, I met her just now. Yeah. So she's more on the operations level, and she uh, joined us as an intern and worked her way up. Oh, very nice, and became a partner. Yeah. So yeah. I think it's pretty good. Yeah. There's hope for people starting from the very bottom, right? <laughs> yeah. I think I think that's that's something um, in F and B especially. Mm. Um, the opportunity for that is abound, right? Mm-hmm. And so she was the one who said, well, we've already been making sourdough breads for the last. Ah, so this was actually her idea. Yeah. She's like, why don't we do a bakery? Yeah. And uh, I had thought about it for a while. And obviously in my head, being more of the, on the entrepreneurial, the business side, I'd go, well, actually, but we're restaurant specialists. You mm. know? Wouldn't we be stretching our team? Yeah. Right. Uh, but I knew, I knew that our sourdough breads have been clearing uh, the shells when we place it there on a daily basis. It's, I mean, not, I'm not even that. I remember when I went to kitchen table to take to table and apron later on, you know, like, uh, first thing I would order as appetizer would be the bread, right? It was, it was always yeah. a very good, uh, experience. And at least back then, not too many people were doing very good sour bread. I mean, it seems to be kind of the craze these days, right? Like everywhere mm. you go, you probably can mm. get a good sourdough bread, but, um, not everyone does it that, that well though, probably. Yeah. It was, it was a good product. Made yeah. Sense. I think it was also because global phenomenon. Um, oh, Sour yeah. breads in the past five, six years, a lot of bakers have been uh, turning towards different methods of preparing it. Very much a very San Francisco style mm. uh, where they pull the fermentation really long. They lower the acidity down. They make the breads a lot more palatable. And just coincidentally, Asians love breads that are on the softer side, right? Mm, so okay. these sour low breads were a good match for it because you'd have that really crispy edges. Mm-hmm. But then very soft on the yeah. inside. And um, that, that was really just a, a matter of, you know, as a baker, really understanding how to pull your fermentation and work that mm-hmm. bread dough out. So, um, you know, we, we were very familiar with the opportunity that was at hand. Uh, but because we weren't specialists in it, we weren't sure whether this was something to mm. dive deep into as well. I'm going to pull in another tangent really quickly before we go back again. Um, where, where is this resurgence of, uh, I don't know, this art, artisanal movement, I guess you could say, of, yeah. of bread again? Like, what, what is this? What, why did it spread from, uh, I don't know, is it is it from America to outwards or other countries outwards? Like, where's this experimentation and why are people adopting it and why is it spreading? Right. So if you want to look at it from a really big picture, and this is for me to put in a, put on a baker's mindset right yes, now. Yes. Um, sourdough breads or traditional like European style breads have always been known to be correct yeah. made in Europe. You know, that's, that's where you go. You go France for breads, yeah. right? Very, very traditional, very proper, a correct. certain way. Right. And, and then in the Americas or in, in the US at least in the 1990s, I think, you know, you had a, a few great, um, bakers who started saying, Hey, look, here's us trying to take what we've already known from the French and try and mm. work it in, in different ways. And, and it's such an American thing to do. <laughs> correct. And <laughs> if, if, if there's any way I can draw parallels, yeah. it's from wine. 
Okay. Yep. Okay. Yeah. You know, Europe being the mecca of wine, old world wine, old world wines, yeah. and then you know, uh, the new world start taking a, taking yes. it apart and saying, okay, let's try and understand this mm-hmm. better. Um, and it's not so much that one is better than the other. Mm-hmm. It is just a matter of taking something that has been tradition and making it relevant again mm-hmm. um, in a contemporary context. So that was that's true years. And, and I don't think, um, you know, the way that the Brits are made today just started off overnight, yeah. right? It was really mm-hmm. just uh, something has changed over the years and a lot of passion because I said, okay, this is the kind of thing we want to move mm-hmm. into. And um, funnily enough, because of the MCO or the lockdown, yeah. people are eating more at home. Yes. And um, because with the extent of social media having an impact and influence, now you get people saying, hey, I want to make sourdough bread at home as well. So mm-hmm. that has accelerated um, the appreciation of sourdough bread. Interesting. So, so people yeah. always talk about how the pandemic accelerated trends. And they're always talking about remote work. They're talking about online tools, old people catching up finally. But what you're telling me is in the F&B world and entrepreneurs who are facing this, that, that it had helped accelerate uh, a, a food trend, actually. Um, yeah. I mean, like when you talk about eating or cooking, they are very tactile experiences, correct? Mm-hmm. So when you look at it uh, during the MCO, Yes, you're right. You know, we have Zoom calls, we have Zoom meetings. We, um, humans are instinctively tribal and uh, social beings. Mm-hmm. And if they're at home, you know, it's their way to get, you know, you know, feel that tactile experience. It goes back to cooking. And yeah. uh, I think it was very natural that people go, what do you think, Brits? Yeah, I mean, okay, you're, you're pointing out a very good trend, right? Like the fact that I started a podcast and a, you know, a million other people as well, uh, just by being home and looking for experiences, like you're, you know, you could drown yourself in Netflix only for X amount of time before you go crazy, unless, you know, people are maybe perhaps depressed or have other issues. But like, if not, you're going to be looking for other experiences. Correct. People started cooking again. A lot of my friends who only went out started cooking again. Like you said, they're, they're looking for those things. And I think, you know, uh, looking from an entrepreneurial standpoint or looking for opportunities, this is uh, an area you could see how that trend, what's permanent, what's changed and kind of beyond the technological aspects too. Like it's a, a lifestyle kind of aspect that changed, I guess, fundamentally and behavioral shifted from that, you know, from ordering the foods or cooking or all these kind of things. Yeah. 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 So that, that was something we really observed during the, the lockdown was that um, after opening the bakery for just a year, just over a year right now, yeah. you're, you're starting to see that demand pick up because there's that appreciation. Yeah. Whereas six years ago when we were, when we just had a restaurant and at the time we were Correct. known as the kitchen table, the first thing people would ask uh, is, what's sourdough bread? Why is it sour? <laughs> really? So uh, we had to educate people on what actually sourdough bread is. Yeah. Especially in our community here in yeah. uh, Damansara Kim and PJ where um, we were probably the second um, Western fusion mm. restaurant that came here because just down the road from us is Euro Delhi that yeah. prior to us being here was 20 years old. Yeah. And they were from, you know, a blast in the past kind of place. Yeah. Um, so when we have something like sourdough breads, um, when you're generally accustomed to dinner rolls, soft potato buns, mm. um, Japanese bread, um, that was at least quite foreign six years ago. Yeah. And to think that now when we open a universal big house and specializing in, you know, a lot of classic baked goods and also with sourdough breads, people yeah. don't come in and ask, oh, what's sourdough bread? 
Yeah, yeah. Or, or you know, there's probably one out of a hundred that will ask that right now. True, true, true. And I guess it's also, I mean, so it feels like there's convergence of multiple trends and. The timing was just perfect, right? It also helps that probably millennials are obsessed with like avocado toast and this kind of thing. And yes. So, so you look on Instagram, it's familiar as well. So I think it's a lot of trends coming together and the timing before the pandemic. So I, I guess my question would be like, you know, when you first started it, you, there was a lot of uncertainty and you had no clue it was going to probably converge like this. What did you think was going to happen with the bakery then back then? Um, right. So when we looked at opening bakery, we started studying what business models work for bakeries, mm-hmm. right? And being a place or a company where we wanted to make sure that every concept we opened had integrity and soul, almost like your favorite restaurant, right? Um, it needed to be curated to mm-hmm. the extent. So yeah. when we looked at it as a bakery with a restaurant specialist um, perspective, we thought, yeah. okay, how do we make sure this bakery made sense in an experiential yeah. perspective. But at the same time, as an entrepreneur, now putting that entrepreneur hat going on, you go, you go yes. if you're going to be making breads and you're going to be making uh, pastries, at least from our perspective and our experience working in bakeries, yeah, you needed a production space. Correct. Um, and even if we didn't have that prior experience um, working in other, other places, um, and at least I can say that for myself and some of my cooks who then influence the type of places we open, but even just baking breads at our restaurant, uh, and knowing that we had a dedicated kitchen just for that. Yeah. So if we had open universal bakehouse, as you say, uh, our dining room space is really small. So conversely, if our dining room space was a lot bigger yeah. and we had a smaller kitchen space, we would have already known yeah. we were supplied to the restaurant. Correct, correct. Yeah. Which meant that we didn't have much left that we could bake for yeah. the community. And I think if you think about um, if you've spent time in Europe and you see the type of bakeries, it's pretty much a very small front. And actually, a lot of them don't have, at least like in Portugal, from what I saw, like you only can stand. Also, I think Italy for coffee, you only can stand, right? Yes. So you're expected just to, you know, point really cool, you know, grab what you want and go, but it's all for the baking and just all the shelf space to maximize, I guess, uh, selling all the big goods because they produce so much, right? Yeah, that, yeah. That, that's, that's precisely correct. I mean, we looked at bakeries elsewhere that's not in Malaysia that, yeah. that were doing like artisanal, yeah. Saudo Britain. We couldn't help ourselves, but check and check these guys out and go, wait a minute, they don't even have a big, Dining room space, yes, right? Yeah. Everything is production related. Um, and when you're baking sourdough breads, um, they take about 24 to 48 hours. So the bread, Different dough, yeah. yeah the, uh, when you've already reached the point where you've made the bread dough, it needs to get retarded in a lower temperature setting, mm-hmm. like a, a, a chiller space. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it gets ready for a uh, you know, bagging it straight into the, the, a really hot oven yeah. just for baking. And imagine the number of breads that you have. You you can't accommodate it in a small chiller in, in your home. Or you mm-hmm. can't even accommodate it with a four-door chiller that most commercial kitchens will have. You literally need a walk-in chiller for this. So we told Gamma and said, yeah, if we're going to do this, you know, we can't be um, half-footed about the positioning of Correct. our space. Yeah. And it was easier for us to convert our production kitchen space into a dining room mm, than the true, other true, way true. around. Yeah. 
But I guess the, the interesting question is like the reason why bakeries around the world are set up that way because it's the nature of the customer behavior to um, wake up early, need to rush to work, quickly take this. It's it's more of, you know, actually it's interesting from, you know, hearing the podcast, it's more of a transaction, right? Albeit, yeah. albeit though, it's a very high quality craftsmanship product that meets the transaction. So I think, you know, it kind of meets that nice little middle space. And my question then would be, how did you know that the user behavior is going to adapt and respond? Like you didn't know that COVID was going to happen, right? So absolutely. Right? So how did you think that, you know, especially for a smaller community neighborhood bakery that uh, building up a big production space in a smaller retail space that you could have that same kind of user behavior or situation? So I, I think the insight we had from this yeah. was built on the six years of us baking mm. breads for our restaurant and selling it yeah. in this small area mm. in the frontage, yeah. which a lot of people said, what is this? Are you selling <laughs> breads or are you a restaurant? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and for the longest time, we thought, man, we got to get rid of this like miserable yeah, yeah, bread yeah. display that we have up front of our restaurant. But it, but it was selling out every day, right? It was selling out every day. Yeah. Um, and that was sufficient insight for us to go, go. all right, I okay. think there's a market okay. here, right? Okay. So that gave us um, confidence. confidence to take more calculated risks. Now, everything is a probability, of course, right? Yes. Yeah. And But we knew enough that if I had to go out and, t- and, and get really good quality Brits at affordable pricing yeah. in the Klang Valley in Malaysia, yeah. where would we go? Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of places that come to mind. That's true. Um, yeah. Well, so what I like, what I I hear and what I like is that it was uh, you had data, you had experimentation, and you know it was not it, it wasn't just a random guess like oh you know we're we're good at bread and we're going to do it. It, it. There's actual proof point of actual customers yep. buying it. So then you kind of know that there is this market. Worst case, you know, it hopefully could break even. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. But then best case, you know, and this is a very roundabout. Okay, so. We're going back to the main point, right? So it's a roundabout way of saying that, you know, you made a very interesting business decision that you didn't know was going to actually help you at a time where, I guess, what what is the business lesson? Do you feel like if you open another place, do you double down on expertise or do you keep diversifying? Like, because this was a diversification that helped because of the pandemic. It's now doing better than the restaurant just because yeah. of the situation. What is the learning and then what do you take for the next experience? Because I'm sure you're thinking about other places already. Yeah. I mean, if I had to uh, think back again and say, okay, if I had a choice to make that decision, what was the the real trigger point? And, you know, when we talk about um, growing as a company, we think about, like you say, do we double down on specializing or do we diversify? Why can't we have both? So mm. at that point in time, actually, we were a restaurant. I mean, we were still a fairly small restaurant team or fairly small team. But at that point, we had 20, 20 people working in a restaurant and about 25% of uh, the people working with us were with us for quite some time, about four or five years. Yeah. And that's a really long time um, in a restaurant that's only six years old. So I also took it from a restaurant's perspective or an employer's perspective that our job is to nurture and grow the people that we have in here. Yeah. And when we came up with the idea that maybe we'll just knock the space down and do a restaurant, I don't think I got a lot of people very excited. <laughs> but okay, that's interesting. Okay. And, and, and that was a, a real key driver for me because um, at the end of the day, there's only so much that I myself can do as a, as a person. And the, the work mm. of uh, running 
FMB. It's, it's a contact sport. It's like it's yeah. there's a lot of physical yeah, yeah, yeah. tactile work that's Correct. involved. So you need people. And they are your biggest assets. So one of the things that we thought, okay, what is it that would seem natural for us to move, move on and do things? And we already had a, a pastry and bake team that yeah. was already supporting restaurant. Mm-hmm. And for them to say, okay, wow, now we have a dedicated kit, uh, kitchen space just for ourselves. It's good motivation. It's good Exciting. motivation. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. There's less of the, let's try and get the buy-in or start from scratch again. This mm. is the momentum we have, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... Let me go back to that question again. Yeah. Double down on specialization or diversification. It was a matter of getting both because interesting. We okay. already had a pastry and bake team that was very interested in doing something more than mm. what we had. And um when we were making sourdough breads at the restaurant, we weren't actually baking it off in deck ovens, which yeah. is essentially what you would need when you're mm-hmm. baking sourdough breads. So this was a breath of fresh air. We also had a bigger space. Um, we had better equipment to work with. And that that was very natural for me saying, okay, yeah. that's where you can now double down specializing. Yeah. Um, and then it was a case of, hey, actually, there, there is diversification, yeah. especially within mm. the community. Because mm-hmm. when the restaurant is not open in the morning, we had a universal big yeah. house that was servicing a breakfast. Yeah, yeah. And when the bakery is closed at night or in the evening, we had the restaurant at night where people could come mm-hmm. to. There was a lot of synergistic uh, values that I saw with yeah. opening these two yeah. businesses together. So it, it was, I, I that that would be my answer to that question. It's a, it's it's a very powerful, nuanced answer, and I think for any F and B entrepreneur, that's going to be an amazing framework to use. And I mean, you did think about it probably, but also like I think a lot of the synergies only came up after doing it. You realized that they complemented each other, right? So I guess if I'm to kind of distill your answer, like if you're thinking about expanding, right? First, you have to think the big picture. What's my captive um, area, right? Because F and B Unless it's not like this kind of franchise McDonald's where you kind of put it everywhere in real estate, right? You're, you're thinking about your area that you're serving your community, right? And you're actually solving a problem for them, right? And then you have to think about your competitive edge, right? And, you know, what what are you bringing? Are you adding value to it, Correct. right? And then when you think about opening up in that same community, it's a combination of one, diversifying, but also going using the synergies of Kind of like making an ecosystem, right? Right, and, and and seeing what's missing in the market to help diversify, but also using what what you're very good at. In your case, it's a, a specialized restaurant plus a bakery. So let's let's do this exercise then. Um, let's say we're opening up a third, you know, another shop lot opens up in Damantara Kim. Yeah, what would that answer be hypothetically? That would be uh, you know going deeper and diversifying. Oh, we've run through that. Ah, he's done it already. already. <laughs> ah, you got the answer. Okay. Um, it likely won't be another restaurant because yeah. um, I think it would be just saturating the space up. Correct. Um, we, when we talk about adding value, it could be the case where we turn ourselves into a sandwich shop, a grocery mm. store. Uh, so, we know, have a prep kitchen yeah. that's making fresh pasta. Mm. That, that seemed to me the most natural thing, especially for Tame and Apron if it was going to grow yeah. because... Tame and Apron is a neighborhood restaurant. And we've been, we've been offered countless times. Hey, would you like to open in Bangsar, in mm. Monkara? Mm-hmm. Would you like to convert mm-hmm. this into a franchise? You know, we, we, you, you, uh, yeah. there are many ways to grow. 
Um, and I think it does come down to us to distill what kind of soul we want this place to have. So obviously, we wanted mm. to make money. There's no question about that. Yeah, of course. Right? It's, it's function of business. Correct. Yeah. But um, is it sort of crafted or grown in a way that seem organic and seem that um, all stakeholders, not include not just the investors, but also um, the people who work in it, uh, whether they can find meaning in it, and also to the community. Yeah. So uh, one interesting fabric that um, we've understood after opening, yeah. you know, Tame and Apron for six years is that restaurants are actually an enhancer of communities. They, they kind of build communities mm. if, That's if true. done right. Right. Yeah, it's a pull, a place of gathering, uh, sharing experiences and creating memories. Uh, the heart of community, essentially. Correct. Right? Yeah. Correct. And what's great is that that community can be those who physically live around you, mm -hmm. right? It could be a community of people who like... Like-minded ideas. Like-minded yeah. ideas. Yeah. Uh, and we wanted to make sure that, you know, one of our, our, our bags, our big, hairy, audacious goals is to like be able to create better restaurant experiences. And when we say that, we mean that like wine as it ages, uh, as a brand, as we age, mm -hmm. we develop those roots further. Um, so we try and go deeper, deeper into yeah. the community rather than just focus on breadth and width. Okay, yeah. so I, I see the philosophy and strategy a little bit better, right? It's this uh, community play. Now, what, so say if I'm, I'm an investor or say I'm a consumer, well, no, I'm not a consumer looking at it from a business standpoint, right? Like it's, it's a range, right? There, there, there is transaction that needs to happen, but at the same time, there's a, a bit of artistry, right? Yeah. How do you know this idea is not being too artistic for the sake of just being an artistic versus, you know, right? Cause it could be very easy to trick yourself, but you know, I'm doing this for the community and things, but are you just trying to do it for the sake of doing it, like being a hipster? And then if you risk that, right, what, what happens? You end up not building anything that really matters of value for the community at large. Yeah, I, I, that's an excellent question. Um, when we look at how we build our own business, yeah. obviously, uh, for myself, uh, sort of my role in the business evolving from uh, first being a cook before all of this to, you know, cooking in our own restaurant and then sort of managing the business and now sort of being more in a restaurant position with bigger teams to manage. We start understanding that um, your metrics are really important. Yes. Right. And that if I look at it from a cook's perspective, I always think that when I try and grow the business, I'm diluting my artistry. Now, <laughs> it, 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 to some extent, it's true, though. Yeah, right? it, it is. It, yeah. yeah. So and, and that's the, the, the great thing about it is that I've been in those shoes. So every time when I when I speak to sh our, our chefs, our cooks, mm. our front of house team, yeah. you know, they're all artists at heart. Of it, course. They're not there to like, you know, okay, let's buy a frozen pack of something yeah. and warm it up. And like, that would be for them, yeah. it would be seen as um, not uh, going against the craftsmanship of things. And just to go on a quick tangent, which is why those types of profiles do very, probably very well for fine dining. Right. It's, yeah. it's purely about just that in like you have your safe space, right? And someone else could help you with the business, but it's about that level of craft and that, you know, that small percentage of people who could pay for that then makes it a viable business. Right. Yep. But I, I, I guess what you're, we're talking about is like, yours is a different end of the spectrum where you, you need that element, of course, right? It's just part of the soul. Uh, but you have to think about it as a business exercise and still being very ground up where it builds 
compounding value and connections to, to make something that will actually be very sticky. Correct. Yeah. So my, my challenge in my role here in my two businesses is to find balance, mm. right? Yeah. Balance in maintaining the craftsmanship of things, which is a mastery of a particular art. Yeah. Actually, it's not really an art. Cooking is very much more craft than an art, unless it's taken to a fine dining level. Mm, yeah. Um, and, and also the balance of being able to look at it as a business. Yeah. So, uh, one thing that help, one thing that helps me clarify is knowing what my personal level of ambition is yeah. for the business. Yep. Um, and then communicating it just across the board to the team. That's culture building, essentially. It's culture building, correct. Yeah. Uh, being able to do that helps us realign a lot of that collective thoughts. And uh, our job is not to go to our cooks and tell them, yeah, I know you want to do this thing that's a bit more craftsman-like, but actually, let's think about scaling the business. Mm. It's almost seen as a... Um, a dichotomy, a binary yeah. question. It's like, I, if I'm a craftsman, shit, I, if I'm a craftsman, <laughs> I can't scale it up. If I'm scaling up, I have to dilute what I'm doing. So um, mm. we had to find ways how to really, really balance that out. But for us, we keep ourselves in check by, um, as we evolve as a company from a restaurant to a restaurant plus a bakery, we started taking on uh, the financial aspect in, internally to our, our own business. Mm. So right now we have our own, uh, we do our own bookkeeping. It allows us to have a faster response to how our numbers look like mm. and tells us what are the growth stages we're currently at. Um, by having both the restaurant bakery as much as they're two separate business entities, we yeah. still look at it from a group level saying, okay, yeah. how are we performing as a group? Obviously, with the whole um, pandemic that has happened, um, we, we become a bit more defensive in terms of yeah. how we want to grow. Yeah, correct. But we're also setting ourselves the foundations so that we can scale, scale culture, for instance, mm -hmm. uh, scale um, craftsmanship, which is the most difficult thing to do. That, so that's why I want to ask. Um, I think I have an idea in my head, but it's like you said, right? You, you, if you're a chef and you want to replicate that, you start diluting your, your artistry and your craftsmanship. Can't, to what degree can you scale craftsmanship? Um, it depends. Now, craftsmanship is very dependent on individualistic competence, right? Correct. Especially as a chef, you know, yeah. a lot of technical skill sets are required to, you know, to be able to fundamentally cook really good things, yeah. whether it's just making something as simple as a mayonnaise or cooking mm. pasta. Very technical. Yeah. Um, but there's also the whole collective part of it, how you work together as a team. Mm -hmm. So one of the one of the things we really focus on um, when we talk about culture building is looking at what we do as a team sport. The closest mm -hmm. analogy I can get myself into thinking that is like we're managing a, a football team, right? Yeah. Who's probably playing in the Champions League or mm -hmm. the Premier League or whatever mm -hmm. you call it. And to think that there are these individualistic competence that can get you to a high level of craftsmanship. How do you... That, that's a really good um, analogy though, sports, right? Yeah, because, well, let's, let's be real. My Our team uh, who works in F&B, they're all... And I, I would say this mostly for most people in the industry who open new businesses that are about maybe 10 years old at least, or at most. Um, the average age is about 25, 27 yeah. tops, mm -hmm. right? It's an athletic sport. 
Mm-hmm. You're standing true, on your true, feet true. all day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very physical. Uh, we we don't find many businesses that has transitioned away from the physical. Oh, we uh, we we find that most businesses have transitioned away from the physical aspect of the work. Right. Let's talk about the pandemic. Work from home. Yeah, yeah. In in the pandemic, F and B businesses are actually well, people are frontliners. They have to be physically at work to produce that product. Correct. Um, so. I mean, it also shows how physical uh, the work can be. So you're really looking at it as a as a sport. You know, you've no. got to be an athlete. You've got to make sure you're in shape. You've got to make sure that you're always keyed in and focused. Yeah. And uh, in a restaurant, especially when you've got a full house, a full dining room, collectively the team needs to be in sync, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. They need to have really open communication lines. That needs to, you know, we have to break down silos. Uh, traditional restaurants, you'd have, for some weird reason, it's front of house versus back of house. <laughs> I think this is a common across almost any, any industry. They'll have this kind of animosity between yeah. front and back or whatever you want to call it, right? Yeah. Um, so as far as finding ways how to break down those barriers, yeah. right? And, and yeah. remember what the collective goal is. So that that's what we kind of focus on, right? How do we yeah. get um, that craftsmanship for it to scale um you you kind of got to take maybe a cook has a certain competence and how do you pull that back in so that Mm. it becomes a collective uh positive scaling so that's a very interesting um element you you also mentioned about it being a team sport in the element of scaling uh craftsmanship and and what I like about the analogy is like if you think about the top athletes in the world they just focus on doing one thing really great and they have their one role that they have to do within a team that's really great, mm. right? And then how does that scale? You have really great coaches and then you have multiple teams. Yeah. Right? Essentially, so if you, you want to kind of apply that uh, analogy to F and B, it's like if you open up a different concept, it's the same thing. You need a really great coach. You need a really great team. Each of the individuals needs to focus on their craft. And the glue that puts it all together is culture, right? Yep. Yeah. So, so and then and I guess that's a way to kind of answer, uh, you know, your answer of how would you scale craftsmanship? And it's probably no different how, you know, sports are a multi-billion dollar industry. Uh, So it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. So, and that's my easiest way of uh, communicating what we do to our really young team (laughs) of people who work with us. It's through sports Uh because they all play sports at this age, most of them at least. Um, And it's something they identified with. Yeah. And well, okay. So I guess if you take this uh, question and then you take it even further, right? In theory, you could make another restaurant of a different flavor or even the same flavor, but build a different team around it. And it might, would it then dilute? It's because it's a different team though, right? And I guess that's what most famous chefs do, right? They have multiple restaurants, but they build different teams to support it. Correct. Right. Um, the, the, the only common denominator is the founding chef. Uh, well, the, yeah. And, and the fact that he's able to carry those values to the different Correct, teams. which is the culture aspect. Then, yeah. Right. And how, how it should be running, checking on it, making sure the machine is running. Correct. Because my other idea was this is like, you could, so opposite of what I was talking about is like you, one, one aspect is you replicating the same thing with a different team. So you could scale craftsmanship that way. Or, you know, you just have a, a bunch of small collectors of very different artists <laughs> somehow yeah. tied together yeah um which is a kind of a looser kind of play but then you have to figure out how to connect it right so like you're doing an artisanal bakery maybe artisanal butchery artisanal something else mm. but it's still under the same values but different things but small right Correct. so in that in that kind of sense 
it's scaling in a different kind of way. Yeah. Yeah, and I I think um, in my role as a restaurant, I think it's important to be flex flexible and yeah. also pragmatic to what is possible opportunities for the growth of the business. We didn't want to silo because this is my mental way of thinking how the business should grow. And we now have two businesses with two different business models. Yeah. We didn't want one to handicap the other. Yeah. So I think it's also being quite pragmatic about that. So for instance, for Universal Big House, it's important to also remember that, you know, we're more product centric than experiential mm. in comparison to the restaurant. Yeah. So how so there's an opportunity for us to take to bakery and scale that. Yeah. Right. With already having a central kitchen allows us to do something along those lines. Whereas for the restaurant, that doesn't seem as viable because it's not as product centric. But how do we scale the experiential side um, and also still keep the team engaged? Because yeah. like you said, if if we had the direction of saying that uh, Tame and Apron would be a restaurant that would be more for scaling multiple mm. units of the same brand, we could easily go and do that as well. Mm. Um, but it's also knowing what kind of voice we wanted this place to grow into. And, and also your team. I think you would have to probably build out another team completely because your assistant team probably would have not been as excited probably to just do the same thing again. Correct. Right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and I f- it feels like you have grown a lot from kitchen table to table and apron. So because a lot of your older interviews and talks were really centered around this idea of uh, experience and feeling and, um, you know, it almost disdaining transactional items like transactional food mm. um, because I, I, I would like to actually get into that story a little bit more like why why you were actually thinking when you switched from kitchen table to table and apron that you felt this need to redefine the from being very of course hospitality driven is very important for F&B as, as a given yeah. right but you know why why almost obsessed you know where it has to be about experience and not transactional food um, okay, that's a great question because when we were running, um, prior to be calling table and apron, we were running kitchen table. kitchen table. And then for the first two to three years, we were running it with the notion that we wanted to put hospitality first. But a kitchen lot, table. Yeah, kitchen table. Okay. Which table and apron still does. Yeah. But we, we found that there was a gap. And the gap being that whatever we preached, when it came to an action point, we didn't quite <laughs> do it, right? Uh, very common in, I would say, across Southeast Asia, to be honest, in, in the retail space. Yeah. And, and we broke it down, all right? We, we just broke it down and said, okay, what are we doing wrong? You know, we keep preaching these values that this is what we are. And uh, I mean... But how, did you, how did you know you were wrong? We were making a loss. <laughs> there you for go. Two years proof, in a row. <laughs> proof in the pudding. So you just need to look at the numbers. You just need okay. to look at the numbers. Yeah, so, I mean, let, let's not forget that if you don't want to be a hipster, you still need to look at your numbers. Correct. Your numbers dictate and tell you whether your yeah. theory, your experiment. Numbers won't lie. Yeah, numbers don't lie. You could lie to yourself, but the numbers won't lie. Yeah, you could yeah. go cry in your room and come and look at a spreadsheet. <laughs> it still won't lie. It's still there. <laughs> yeah, correct. Um, so we, uh, when we saw that, then we knew that, okay, there was a big change that needed to happen. But it was not correct or it, it wouldn't hit home if we went to the team and said look these are numbers yeah because num- our guys in the front line are like yeah what does that number mean to me so we started mm. breaking down a lot more we started okay. asking okay do you know who your regulars are 
Okay, right? I see. And I still remember the first meeting we had. It was five of us yeah. in front of house. And there were six names that came up. Mm-hmm. So that means collectively, between all five of us, only six names came up. Oh, wow. And we, we didn't remember everyone else, yeah. right? Yeah. We didn't connect the dots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we were also stuck between, are we a restaurant? Are we a cafe? Can uh, we be both? Right? Mm. Can we be affordable? Yet, can we be a place where the food is different? Yeah. Now, we want to hit all the balls into the right parks, right? Of course. But we were losing a bit of focus. People would come in and say, so what kind of food do you do? Mm. Right? And when we say we do Malaysian because we were using Asian ingredients, it was very natural for them to go, so where's the chicken rice? Where's the nasi lemak? <laughs> right? yeah, or yeah, where's yeah. the whatever you call it, Correct. which is Malaysian. And then when we said that, oh, okay, let's try a different take. We're a Western restaurant. Where, where's the steak? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, it was it was a real wild ride at that time. But we started uh, changing things bit by bit. So it was not so much a significant shift, but rather making 1% contributions on a few different things that we did as a restaurant. Yeah, so it's an exercise of building value, uh, an exercise of focus, which... I feel like so many young and new entrepreneurs will make that mistake when building from tech to anything, like they will try and do everything. And then of course, when you're trying to do everything you don't know what you're doing and the customers don't know what value you're bringing to them. Yeah. So, and I guess what you're, I guess what you're telling me is like uh, this, this idea of experience and why you talked about it so much back then was um, you needed to focus to find what, what you guys actually were. Correct. Correct. And, and sadly for me that, that took two years, two plus, two to three years. But um, uh, and luckily you didn't die out because at, at that point I feel most people would die out, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and the the big thing was also making sure there was a collective purpose. So, yeah. um, the three years after we opened Kitchen Table, when we called Table and Apron, because what actually happened, and maybe your listeners don't know, why do we keep switching between this <laughs> name Kitchen Table and Table and Apron? So what happened was we uh, made the amateur mistake of not trademarking our name called the kitchen table. Ooh, and um, good business lesson there. <laughs> we were informed that that name was taken by a, a big hotel. So um, we didn't have the cash to, to fight it. Such a big hotel thing to do. Yep. And um, do we want to call them out? <laughs> no, it's fine. They didn't fine. use the name in, in the end. Yeah, when they still so. took the trademark. <laughs> um, okay. But, um, it was a good lesson for us. That's and true, actually, so on, on hindsight, it was great because the moment the name changed, and it, we had to come up with the with name in like a week or so, yeah, Tame and Apron. Yeah. Uh, when the name changed, people wondered, okay, what's new about this place? Did did they go bankrupt? Did management <laughs> change? Uh, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but that was also the transition time where we said, okay, we've got to do things a bit better. Mm-hmm. And what made a change was because as I guess when you're looking from an entrepreneur's perspective, sometimes scarcity is very important. Mm. Abundance could be bad for you. It can be very bad. Yeah. Too, too much. Don't know what to do. Yeah. When you have your back against the wall, right? And there's nothing to lose. Yeah. You try all, all kinds of things, right? Mm-hmm. And that was when we, we took more risk, right? Mm. We Interesting. But we didn't take big risks. I mean, our biggest risk. Yeah, we took calculated risk. I mean, our biggest risk was the fact that we had to change the name, anyways. Yeah. So I, I don't see how, what further risk could be bigger than that. So we started, uh, we started dropping off our brunch. We used to do brunch on weekends, which was great. It was contributing to at least ten percent of our, our weekly sales, mm-hmm. and we we're like, 
Why are we doing brunch? Uh, why are we doing brunch? Why are we taking it out? And we realized that we were still stuck between that cafe and restaurant. Mm, yeah. People would review us and go, I love this cafe. And we're like, well, we call ourselves a restaurant. Now, mm -hmm. I can't go to a guest and say, no, you've got to start calling us a restaurant. Yeah. We had to psychologically change how people perceive that experience. So we started wearing okay. I see. uniforms. Well, we yeah, started yeah, wearing yeah, shirts yeah, yeah, yeah. that were a bit more consistent, whereas before, we allowed our team to wear whatever they wanted. Mm -hmm. And we've teamed with very diverse backgrounds from foreign staff to local team members. Yeah. We were wearing rainbow colors. <laughs> that was a hipster kind of feel yeah, that we yeah, were going yeah, for. Yeah. Um, so we changed. We kept changing. We kept adopting. And those 1% kind of like started yeah. realizing. And one of the big things we say is that we wanted to make sure that when people walked out of our restaurant, yeah. they would see us as, this is my favorite restaurant, mm. right? Okay. Not your best restaurant, yeah. but my favorite restaurant. Yeah. Um, and... I think we started seeing the fruits of those labor mm -hmm. maybe a couple of years after yeah. we made that transition. So, so from what I understand then, and what was not told in the media before was uh, things were not going well. And the reason why you're so obsessed with experience is because you needed it to build the value to survive and figure out what people actually wanted and to find your identity, find your soul, essentially. Right? Yeah. And my, 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 the whole line of questioning for this was to point out that it almost felt like you were just being hipster in your, in your interviews. You're coming across like, oh, we just want to focus on experience. And um, I mean, because from a business point, it does make sense. It's an exercise of uh, creating retention and stickiness in customers because you finally understand what they want and you value you bring to them. But it sounds like it's actually beyond that. You know, you you found a core business built around that and then you could scale it up now. And it has this identity that's very clear now. Yeah. Um, and then... And it's not so much that you were adverse to this idea of transactional food, right? Because essentially Universal Bakehouse has become a transactional business. And it's, it's, the story comes out now you're a very well-rounded experienced entrepreneur of these varying experiences to help contribute to building even a more vibrant ecosystem, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And um, uh, my, my idea of adopting uh, the analogy of a team spot really came to the fore about a couple of years ago. And how that really helped us leap um, ahead when it comes to uh, saying that, okay, we want to keep this as a really great experience. We want our customers, yeah. we want our team to focus on this being a great experience. We started tying metrics together, right? Mm -hmm. um, so we, we when we first started, when we, we went from having five team members going, okay, I remember six names, to then saying, okay, how do we remember more? we started introducing rituals where we talk about guests mm -hmm. during post-modern meetings. So ah, okay. like a team sport, you'd have pre-service yeah. or pre-game, post-game. Mm. And within that, some of the agenda we had was talking about guests. Then we started taking our reservations a bit more seriously. So we started tracking database ah, using their phone numbers. Very good. It allows us to remember guests. Why? Because if our front of house team member is not there on that day, or we had hired a new part-timer, we needed to make sure they knew who this guest was. And then what technology are you using to track that then? Well, back then we were just using Excel. Yeah. Um, and it was just a simple case of... Uh, just type in the name and see. Type in the name. And then you have to read up. quickly and know. Yeah, yeah, the problem is our sheet got way too big for the computer. <laughs> oh, that's good. There are a lot of customers yeah, then. Yeah. We're using the POS, which was already... Yeah. Uh, it wasn't the highest performance CPU out there, yeah, so it was yeah, pretty yeah. slow. Um, 
But again, we, we you know we we embrace technology as well. We we now use a, a CRM software called Umai, which I think most oh Umai, I I know uh, the founder Jonas. I, I have to get him on the pod. Oh yeah, yeah. Is it a good? You want to give good feedback, bad feedback? Tell tell me what it is so I could tell him later what he needs to fix. Uh, when he first approached this, uh, we thought it was bad. <laughs> we, we thought we we were probably doing a slightly better job than what he was doing it, and yeah. we thought, okay, no, we'll stick with our Excel sheet. Yeah. Um, uh, but I think, uh, he was persistent, right? Um, he's very persistent, this guy. Yeah. <laughs> and, and they came knocking on our door, uh, um, uh, a year later again saying, Hey, okay, we're back with better features. Would you be interested? Yeah. And when I knew that, when I kind of had a feeling that they were going to be sticking into the game, we thought, okay, maybe it's worth considering it. Even if it's just for a year. Why? Yeah. If it upped our game, mm. why not? Yeah. Right. If it means that we have better metrics to measure rather than having that feel and me just telling our team members, hey, that person's a regular. Do you remember their name? Yeah. That's just, that's not so much hiring someone for competence. That's like trying to say, hey, do you have good memory or not? Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and we wanted to avoid going down that line. So um, we, we used Umai, which I think so far has been great. Mm-hmm. Um, there are still things that can be improved on. Let's just name one um, or two. Well, um, prior to the pandemic or even after the first pen, uh, first lockdown, uh, we get a lot of customers that come into our place. Uh, we move our tables a lot, like a jigsaw puzzle, yeah. right? Fairly complicated. We try and extract as much turns as possible without compromising their experience. Uh, that's a real art. And the way we've gone about it mm-hmm. is we have a template of a dining room and okay. our team just fills in um, the reservations on there and they can visually just move it really quickly mm, okay. whereas with a lot of the softwares the software needs to understand the back-end part of the strategy mm, in order to okay. accommodate to that so that that was where it was yeah. challenging but I didn't, I didn't expect who might be able i mean that's a tough one because you're talking about how do you scale a SaaS product across vastly different customized things and correct to invest in the the team to build tools that can customize and then make it a good experience is very tough but it's good feedback though yeah but i give them credit i think they've they've built quite a lot of add-on features on it that i thought were, were, were quite brilliant but so, in, so worth worthwhile for your investment yeah um so what it does right now is that we we started using technology as well as a way to track our guests so we're able to tier our guests right now based on the frequency of them dining in mm-hmm. uh within a time frame yeah and then we tie that kind of metric to our own front of house team as well. So they know they have to hit certain metrics. Wow. Um, that's that's so quite it's, intense because you have a four person office team and everyone else is in working in the restaurants or bakery, yeah. right? Yeah. So like, how, how do you, how do you go about uh, implementing that and making it actually functional? I, I would imagine if it was me and you just give it to me, I'm just like, okay, sure. But then I wouldn't use it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, when we found out, that um, Umai, Umai allows you to log all the, the guests in and you can actually check it out on on the, the user interface, right? Mm. Like your guest details and all. Yeah. And then uh, we started nosing around. We found that we could, you know, they allowed the, the, the clients to download the backend data. Yeah. And from there, we would extract a report for ourselves. So we just hatch it out ourselves. Oh, okay, okay. And then we, we can see and track whether... Um, we're getting more regular guests coming in, um, and we kind of tier them into gold, silver, bronze. It allows okay. us to like yeah. tier them accordingly Perfect. and know what we need to do with them. And also for our front of house team, they they have to have some goal setting 
yeah. in place. Okay. Uh, because let's not forget that running in F&B, the sport is repetitive, it's physical, it's yeah. long. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't use the word rudimentary, but to a certain extent, it sometimes is. Yeah, you know? yeah it definitely can be. Um, so how do you make sure that they're still using that part of the brain that is involved in decision-making, complex yeah. thinking, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so these were some of the metrics that we used to, to ensure that our team was still engaged on that, on that high level. And it's very easy to have mental fatigue when, you know, it's repetitive. I mean, yeah, I, I put yeah, myself yeah, in the yeah, shoes yeah. Of, of being a, a waiter sometimes when I'm in the ops sign and yeah. I'd zone out. Yeah, I just stare <laughs> straight in space, right? Yeah, 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 and from yeah. a manager saying, you're just zoning out. Yeah, yeah. So how do you make sure that you still maintain that, that focus? Yeah, and it's partially using technology from what I'm hearing. Um, that's such an excellent point. And I, I talked a little bit about Renyi because like, it's essentially part of, it's part of the question of how do you build great hospitality, right? And it's, it's not easy because other parts of the world, partially culture, partially education, right? They can just have, hire someone who can intuitively you know, understand someone else's needs. And then if you ask a customized question, they could probably meet the expectation. Mm. But, you know, it's not as natural, I notice, in Southeast Asia. You go to restaurants, you ask something, anything outside a big rule or outside a menu, they're just, it breaks down. Right? Yeah, yeah. And yeah. and it's part of, you know, partly on autopilot. And um, and I guess you guys partially solve it by culture, partially by technology, it sounds like. Um, yeah, I mean, technology is there to assist. Assist, yeah. Um, without that culture, that, that collective direction, you know, technology would just be technology. There's yeah. still probably a few thousand restaurants out there using umai i think it's a few thousand i'm not sure <laughs> yeah i don't quote me on that but <laughs> but uh do they use it to the extent that we do or do we even better i don't know but that's a that's, that's a good area for that's them. a good thing and you should probably bring it up to the next good food alliance to see how, how they're handling it right yeah i yeah. guess so yeah yeah but i don't know if it would, if it would apply to everyone maybe no it, it yeah. really depends so umai is probably best if uh you're a full service okay full and service you take that. reservations okay. right but they have been trying to pivot to tap into um other concepts fnb concepts that don't rely on reservations mm, as well okay. because umai is um actually just a, a crm software yes correct it's fronting as a reservations but mm, but really also, it's yeah. yeah i think there's real power in that and as a CRM software, right? So you, you actually segment your customers. It sounds like, it almost sounds like you're a technology company because this is what we would do as well, right? You, you would take the data, segment them. The question is now, what do you do with your segmentation? Do you have gold, silver, bronze? Yeah. But what does that mean in terms of your world? For technology world, okay, uh, this person has not logged on and he, yeah. prob he probably wants to be reactivated. So we send him an email or an SMS or something, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, so what are you guys doing? Um, so, for just Tame and Apron, we run a very subtle, um, covert marketing style. We don't like send you an SMS says, Hey, it's your birthday. Come yeah, yeah. and get 20% discount from us. Um, and we also want to maintain that the, let's go back to the word, the craftsmanship, that surprising element of coming to a neighborhood restaurant. Yeah. So our cooks will come up with things, you know, whether it's like small bites, complimentary small bites, complimentary like, small petit foods mm. or even maybe we've got a special dish down the pipeline which our team constantly does R&D that's just part of the ritual mm -hmm. that we do here um, you know it allows our cooks to think more instinctively as chefs so what we do is that when we identify that a guest um, is a tiered member whether it's gold, silver or bronze they, 
they don't they don't actually know whether they're that they don't get a physical yeah, card yeah, saying yeah, yeah, you're yeah. a gold member of yeah, yeah, yeah. but when they come in to dine at the restaurant our team should instinctively know what to do which uh, means to enhance experience essentially correct yeah and that's a way to keep them surprised, delighted, engaged, and wanting to return. Yeah. And I always tell my team, and it is a true fact, that for every single time that the guest returns back to the space, yes, it means there's loyalty, mm-hmm. but their expectations also increase over time. True. Yes. And then, so I guess my follow-up question would be, because the, the point is to understand them as a user, the preferences and behavior, so you give them a better experience, right? But essentially, you want to convert them to higher tiers as well, right? You want bronze to move to silver and silver to move to gold, right? I mean, if we could do that, that'd be great. But I I, I know for a fact that, um, and let's talk about your favorite restaurant, right? Let's say you you have this restaurant that you really like. Mm -hmm. You'd visit them over the course of a particular period of time. Yeah. It's hard to accept but sometimes you find there's a better girlfriend out there and you like to go visit her, <laughs> right? And this is especially apt in F&B world, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that does change. And I think it's us accepting the fact that that life cycle of a guest visiting a restaurant um, is transient. Okay, so it's, you, you expect a certain lifetime value out of a customer then? Yeah. Okay. But we try to extend that. Of course, yes. And we try and make sure that, hey, we're still here. We still, you, you know, you can still love us because yeah. we still love you. And an important element, and this goes for building any type of product or experience is surprising and delighting. Like if you have a customer who gets surprised and delight, you do increase lifetime. You do increase stickiness and at yeah. least the probability of them using your service or product again. Right. So, so that probably explains why as a place at Tame and Apron where it's a lot more experiential rather than product centric, mm-hmm. like Universal Big House. Yeah. Uh, marketing strategies where like come four times you get a free fried chicken yeah that kind of doesn't work that's not gonna work yeah um rather it's more like man they remember my name mm. um that's amazing right yeah, or yeah. like they remember it was my birthday last week yeah um something as subtle and small as that has real yeah. impact in a world where people want to feel important yeah and i think that's but at the same time a transactional business cannot be completely devoid of a soul. So how do you bring a little bit of the experience, uh, ex- you know, um, expertise into Universal Big House, which is primarily transactional driven? Right. Okay. So that's a great point. Um, well, we've only been one year into the business <laughs> and trying to find our feet operationally. Yeah. Uh, but one thing that the Universal Big House front of house team does um, was basically what the restaurant team did three years ago, which is talk about the guests in post-mortem. And one of the things we do as a team sport would be mm. you'd build defensive plays and you build offensive plays. Yes. So we have offensive plays where when we see a guest and we know that guest, yeah. call them by name. Mm. It's as simple as that. True. And you will have regulars coming in. You would yeah. have regulars coming in. Or if you recognize that said person is a regular, but you forgot their name, Give them something on the house, mm-hmm. right? Throw in a surprise. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, it's less structured than the restaurant, right? That's fair. But we are also at a point now that because we have an online store due to the pandemic. Ooh, a lot of data, right? Love it. <laughs> We've got data going on. <laughs> um, but we're, we're getting there. We're trying to see how from a product-centric standpoint, we can still build customer loyalty in a way that is also experiential. Mm. And we're also learning from a lot of mostly tech companies that... 
you know, I, I think uh, there was one time we had um, uh, the founder from Oxwhite came and did a talk. Ah, okay. Nice. Uh, and I mean, we were amazed by how he would build customer loyalty. I think his name is, his name is CK. He would build customer loyalty just purely through selling shirts on an e-commerce platform. And yeah, he had a, they raised a lot of money on crowdfunding, I think. Like they, they did a really good, I think he's really good at sales, I suspect. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I haven't tried the product, so I can't speak to the product, but I heard they sell a lot. So, and it's just plain white Oxford tees, right? Or yeah, no uh, brand. Yeah, no brand, yeah. right? Yeah. So uh, we're also looking at, okay, how do we take that to the next level? So I'm not so much siloed to saying that this is how we, do hospitality or this is how we provide mm. hospitality but what means do we have where we can ensure that hospitality is present with our guests yeah. not just when they're dining with us but even when they're physically apart right i think for for the bakery that's especially more paramount given that's very product centric yeah. um but these are really new things for us to learn especially from my end where i come from a background of probably cooking from the kitchen and you know mm. evolving into this position where we are also managing different people both yeah. yeah essentially you've been forced to grow as a leader over these years and i think you know right now today you're coming off as a very well-rounded entrepreneur a strong leader but that was probably coming from a place of a lot of growth and probably pain right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. And I think one of the things I would love to talk about then is that the genesis of all these learnings is probably transitioning from kitchen table to uh, table and apron. And you, you talk about very on a high level, you know, you had um, a founder breakup. And I kind of want to continue this conversation from the end of Renyu's episode, you know, just difficult conversations and issues with partners. Mm. So what, what was exactly happening there, right? So the business wasn't doing well. And then you know, what happened before that and what led up to it that you decided to have a, a partner breakup, right? Right. Um, actually, that's, that's a good point. Every time you go into business, and, and I, I, re I still recommend that when you go into any business, don't do it by yourself. Surround yeah, yourself yeah. with great people. People keep saying that, but they don't go through the finer details of what that means. Right? Yeah, that's true. that's true. And that was when I went into the business. And I think that was also partly our experience of growing, um, businesses mm -hmm. and growing relationships with partners and even with teams. Um, when we first started out in 2012, we started off as the kitchen table supper club. So mm -hmm. I started with another. Yeah, a dining uh, club, essentially. Yeah, yeah. ex-business partner of mine uh, who, who who offered tremendous value and was very much on a similar wavelength. wavelength. Yeah. And it was only the two of us. And I think we really danced well together. Mm -hmm. uh, the business did really well. But as the business grew, as more people became introduced into the business. Which okay. means partners employees, or employees, okay. Employees coming in. Yeah. Uh the, the the important thing was making sure that your your first principles were clearly aligned. Which is and culture which, and what would you value essentially? Correct. Yeah. yeah. And at that point in time we, we really struggled with having a, a, a strong alignment of what we were doing. Why is that? I think that also came down to us both not having any prior experience of running businesses. Mm, that's fair, being young leaders, yeah. trying to figure it out on the go. Yeah. And I don't blame our younger selves then because I still work with 22, 23-year-old <laughs> kids. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's having a bit of patience and saying, you know, if I was in their shoes, would I have been that stubborn? 
I would. Probably, yeah. Or probably worse, right? <laughs> and I've been in those shoes before where I would work at a restaurant and go, okay, well, I want to open my own place one day, so I'm going to learn as much as possible from you. And yeah, yeah. Move on, right? Correct. Um, and at that time, we didn't develop the kind of language that mm. we should be having it um, when we're running a business together, right? So it's language and also, did, what about communication channels? Um, yeah, so so that's the thing. We were running the business, so we had two two key factors that I thought uh, was was you know culminating into you know either the the no synergy between the partners mm. and also you know poor sales. We were not focused because we were either a restaurant or a cafe slash bakery because we had sour mm-hmm. bits and yeah. uh, we had that going on. We. Uh, no one knew what we were trying to go for. I think we we tried putting our hands in too many pots mm. at that time. Yeah. Funnily enough, now we have a bakery and you go, wait a minute, you already <laughs> have a bakery. What are you talking about? Yeah. But when you first start a business, it's always important to make sure that there is focus. Yeah. Right? And I know that's been essential because in whatever other business opportunities I've seen or been involved in in the past six years, we've always realized it comes back to the fore focus focus mm-hmm. is so important to that secondly was about resilience right now it's easy to be happy with your partners when things are going well yeah, right yeah but it's, when things don't work well that's when the cracks start to happen yeah that's when the cracks starts to happen and having those open honest conversations um right at the get-go would be have been important and i don't think we did a due diligence for that because we were riding off really strong momentum with the supper club we yeah riding yeah. off really strong momentum opening the restaurant yeah and also it's quite strong in terms of people coming when it first opened right yeah yeah and we didn't have any experience um you know you know i could like you say you know in in my previous interviews we could be talking about uh, hospitality being in the forefront you know experiential services being offered to a guest being very important mm. But that's all just say when you don't have those action points that realize mm. that down. And, and that's what you were going through back then, I guess. Yeah. 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 You were learning everything. <laughs> Correct. So I think that that culminated in a, in a, in a breakup because, you know, we were at a juncture where we had to decide, um, where the direction of the business should okay. be, knowing that we were, we weren't even making money, um, yeah. or we were losing money and that we had this impending uh, trademark infringement, which was literally a nail, nail in the coffin, right? I mean, I mean, back then it probably felt just like the probably the world's ending, right? Yeah, but as one of my one of my 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 peers uh, who who runs restaurants in the US said, let's be frank, Marcus, no one really remembers the name of your restaurant. <laughs> that's years, true. So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's very real. I mean. It's true, but you know, t- tough, tough, tough love, I guess. Tough love, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and and that, that was that, that was what happened. So difficult conversations need to happen, and you know, even now I have I have a managing partner who's asked. I was excellent in operations, yeah, right? Yeah. And um, it's also creating a culture where we are open to agree to disagree, mm. and most of the time, even between current partners or even within your own team. Are we setting a culture of um, a yes man culture? Like, let's do it. Okay, yeah. boss says this. Let's yeah, do it, yeah, right? Or are we creating a culture where we allow dissent? Not every of moment, course, but work, yeah. a space where dissent is allowed. Yeah, that's very important because 
descending views are what gives you the edge, right? That's that's how innovation. Yeah, you avoid tunnel vision and you could see Correct. different kind of risks. Yeah. Um, so we're we're a lot more deliberate now than we were before. So even within our our pre-service postmodern meetings, we allow for dissent to happen. We allow yeah. for criticism to come in, and there's always that time for that that right space and time for that to happen. Um, and you know, I, I read this book uh, recently called Leadership is Language. Mm -hmm. It's an excellent book by Le David Leadership Mark. Language. Leadership is language. Liz language. Okay. And it helps distill how your work is split into primary split into blue work and red work okay red work being the the type of repetitive task mm. that you would do every day whether it is brushing your teeth driving a car okay. yeah. um, in the case of a restaurant or bakery setting up the store yeah. right blue work being uh, the kind of work that involves more complex decision making yeah. more collaborative um Critical thinking. Critical thinking doesn't depend on the time yeah. of the strategy. Yeah. Red, red work is where like, okay, it's 9 a.m. We've got to open shop by 8.30 a.m. Yeah. Something go, like that. Go through the process. Yeah. And it's getting our entire team aligned towards that lapse of mm -hmm. uh, sprints of, you know, transitioning between red work, blue work. Mm -hmm. So that's what allows that kind of culture of openness, I think, mm. um, and including then, smiling about it. But what, what if your job is primarily um, uh, red work is the, operational processes yeah what if your job is just primarily that like how how to what degree can you get blue work in their actual day or do we expect a burn and a churn and a rehire again great so that's where i guess leaders are supposed to be thinking how to create yes. spaces of blue work because you know in the industrial age you're a red worker. I'm a blue worker. Yes, you're, you're, you're the guy working on the line while I'm the guy yes, thinking, right? Working back in the day was exactly like that. That's, yeah. how, that's how management theory developed, essentially. Correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's fascinating because not that I was interested in it before, but <laughs> I'm obliged to be interested in it now. You have to know about that yeah. now. And uh, you realize that workers these days, they're a lot more agile in terms of their thinking, yeah. right? Um, let's not even talk about, you know, uh, millennials who grow into the business uh, come come to workforce right now they're just exposed to so many different experiences and having uh, a relevant contemporary management structure today is more important than what you would have from before mm -hmm. so let's take for example someone who's operationally on the line like our front of house captains yeah they've got a ton of red work but they've got to make sure they have space for blue work so they don't get fatigued by the red work yes. or build defenses around the red work. It's mm. almost like that's tough, man. Yeah. Thinking is a risk. So I'm just going to start wiping glasses and serving. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's, therefore that's where the metrics come to the fore, right? Mm. Like things like, okay, uh, how many tier guest growth do we have this month? Or yeah. Who are they and what actions do we take? Mm -hmm. And do you give them autonomy to decide how to work in that? Then yeah. they start looking at it, like a game and yeah. they get a bit more engaged than you would in a traditional restaurant where you'd just be serving customers, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, I think that comes down to the leader's job. And when I say leaders, I don't just mean me, but every leader in this organization has to find a way how to mentally engage our team who's primarily red work, especially in Fiona and Ops. Yeah. For our cooks, it's the same thing. You know, you're cooking the same thing. Their blue work would be yeah. coming out of new specials. Yeah, you, you want them to think about that too. So they aren't just stuck in this uh, mindset too too artistic or yeah. you know, it has to be this kind of way, right? Yeah. So you got to stretch them and mold them too differently, which is essentially a challenge of leadership. And so what, what I'm hearing is, you know, from, from your initial breakup to forming new partnerships, um, 
you know, it's you were young, and I think most young founders are kind of in that kind of situation. And if you're going to be an entrepreneur and it's a long journey, uh, you're bound to have a breakup sooner or later, probably. <laughs> you know, if, if ideally sooner, so you get the learnings, right? And in a sense, that kind of transformed you into what the leader you are today and everything you're talking about now, right? Mm-hmm. So what, what kind of advice would you give to founders on the brink of a partnership breakup? Um, like it or not, be transparent, right? Yeah. Uh, it's probably easier to be emotional, right? Yeah. Um, because you've got this dear baby that you've built together mm-hmm. um, that you don't want to sort of destroy. Um, be transparent and on, on, honest about things. Uh, be object, as objective as possible. Yeah. And I also try and understand for you personally as a partner, what is it that you want in this, right? Mm-hmm. Regardless of whether you have another business partner. You got to know your end goals. Yeah. You got to know your end goals. And, and some of the things is, what's your personal level of contentment? Yeah. Right. What are you contented with? You want to open 50 stores? Yeah. You want to open one store, two stores, right? Sometimes it's easy because when you talk about building a brand or building a company or building a concept, it's the most exciting thing to do. Let's talk <laughs> about what we can achieve. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why are we talking about what we couldn't achieve and what we failed to achieve? Mm. Um, and I think that's the, the part if you don't have the prior experience, that's the only thing that it drives positivity and hope yeah. and therefore you focus on that but when you get to the point of the brink of saying okay this isn't it for me it is as much your responsibility to define what your personal level of contentment was mm-hmm. and is and be okay that things don't work out um, that's, yeah. that's that's my advice I, I guess yeah what you're saying is it's it's and I think this is neglected on a lot of the talks and books and learnings is, is deep, being deeply introspective. You have to know yourself. Yeah. And of course that comes over through experiences and, and learning from failings and growth and all these kind of things. But, you know, knowing what you want or at least thinking what you know you want and then map, mapping that out should help you at least as things come up, you know, mm. right? But introspection is hard to have when you're yeah. constantly running a rat race. Yeah. Right. So true, true, true. S- setting, yeah. setting time apart essentially to do that is important. And, most partners struggle in that. Like even I myself, like I struggle for introspection when I know that things aren't getting done. Mm-hmm. I've got other things to do, maybe sending new processes involved or having meetings with team. Yeah, that makes get, gives me an idea that I'm being productive mm-hmm. while sitting down and just <laughs> reflecting and mulling on myself in a corner. It's, seems like the most counterproductive thing to but do. It's very productive actually. Yeah. Correct. Well, it's more like uh, future proofing long-term will help out. Right. Yeah. My last question about this topic then is, as you broke up, how did you know who was right and who was wrong in absolute terms? Or was there no such thing as absolute terms? And then how do you deal about, how do you go about dealing with, you know, your feelings if, you know, maybe I was wrong or maybe she was right or these kind of things? Right. Now, um, to answer that first question, when it comes to running hospitality businesses, yeah, I don't, personally don't take it as a decision is absolutely right or mm. decision is absolutely, absolutely wrong, wrong. Um, when we run businesses we have multiple decisions to make every day that's it's not even yeah, about course. F&B business any business, business right yeah. the question is the degree of whether the collective agrees to that okay right? they can support it with their actions and behavior mm-hmm. they don't have to necessarily say yeah I, I morally support this decision mm. right 
it's making sure there's collective alignment. So the issue at hand isn't so much whether something was morally right or, or not, but more do we collectively agree, okay, we want to move in this yeah. direction. My, my only criticism to that is I, I kind of feel like this is the right answer in general, but like there are instances in case in history and time where the collective is just wrong. That's true. Right? So then how do you, right? You see what I mean? Great. I, I understand what you mean. So then that becomes the leader's job to be as stretchable and open as possible to ensure that we don't lead the group or the team in a group thing position where like, okay, yeah, collectively yeah, we yeah. all agree. So yeah. if I go in uh, and, and sort of set up a culture where like, I don't take no for an answer or my way yeah. or the highway, yeah then the organization is exposed to being making mistakes on a collective level yeah, that seems wrong. Yeah. Uh, so you almost have to be extremely self-aware about how you're getting teams to make decisions. Yeah. And that's the hard part. You're right. That's, yeah. the, that's the hard part. And I guess if you want to do this exercise, you have to develop mental models to be aware of your cognitive bias at the end of the day. Right? you got to Correct. protect against that. And the other aspect of that is you're going to get it wrong. Uh, you might, they might come to a point in time where you built a culture or a team where the collective was just wrong and you might have to accept that and learn from it. Or it could be the way around where you were just wrong and the collective was right. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. And I guess the only way is you're going to feel that pain, <laughs> unfortunately, and then hopefully you can grow from it and make it better for next time, essentially. Yeah. 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 So I, I think that answered that first question about, yeah. um, uh, the fact that there's no, so not, not such thing as, absolutely right or wrong obviously there is when it comes to moral principles of course yeah. but when it but comes to personal, yeah. running businesses so long as that action doesn't burn the roof down and like there's no business to or operate, you go back and fix it yeah yeah, yeah. I, everything is really stretchable in that yeah. sense right i think that's a really important concept to learn because you're going to meet a lot of people who are fixed logical logicians like it has to be you know make perfect sense and there is this idea of right and wrong you know so uh but then i guess that's a, a, a an exercise as a leader how do you deal with a difficult person then right but correct you will come across it yeah all right the last major topic before closing um food as an institution right i, I believe that's was at least you know when you talked about your your end goal yep so table and apron universal big house the collective the group you want to be an institution right yep what does that mean right um, that simply means that we're in it for the long run. I mean, mm -hmm. that really is a term for institution, right? Yeah. A, a place that has credibility, has recognition. Um, and we wanted whether any idea of things that we open, it needed to be there for at least 10 years or more. Okay, right? so 10 years, yeah. Um, it, it can't be the place that, okay, we're here for two, three years and, and okay, that's it, down. we're closed yeah. down, right? We want to be a part of the community. So that's why it was very deliberate um, for, for the users or listeners who don't know enough about Universal Big House. It used to be called Universal Laundry. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the frontage or the signage of the shop, it was basically exactly the old shop signage. Yeah. And why we took on it was not because we were trying to be hipster, although it does look like it. But because there was something about that sign or that business, which we knew like the back of her hand mm -hmm. that told us something, that this business was here for its community for 40 years, mm -hmm. right? And for me, I like this romantic notion that I need to find meaning in my work. Of course. And yeah. when we opened this big house, what did it mean to us? Yeah. And what would it mean to the community? And how do we make sure that that meaning is sort of salient, like, 
at the surface for the, for for people to understand. Yeah. Um, so therefore, we chose to call it Universal Bakehouse. We we were very close to calling it, if you haven't guessed it yet, flour and water. Very <laughs> <laughs> on the nose. <laughs> yeah, and then uh, we yeah we call it Universal. I, Bakehouse. I like this. I I mean, there's a there's a history to it. There's a provenance. Uh, it's a continuation, even though it's a different line. And it fits into your whole philosophy. And I like this name better than versus flower. I feel that it almost sounds like another bakery that's just popped up somewhere else, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Correct. So I think this is much better. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and longevity is very important. So, you know, when, when I think of the word institute, institution, I think about longevity and it's got to be consistent with my personal goals. Yeah. Um, and, you know, as a restauranter, our job is to raise the standards in the industry. That's, that's why, why we chose to be here right i mean yeah. yes to run successful businesses but to build future leaders yeah and the only way to do that is to make sure that you're not just like opening two stores and mm-hmm. like shutting it down and opening something else correct and, correct and not building a track record for it i mean i'll give you a quote here so for the s and p 500 which is a stock index from the u.s 500 large companies essentially you know with a lot of stock um back in 1958 the average lifespan of those public companies was 61 years fast forward today um, by if if you are on S and P 500, you will only be there for about 18 years now. So longevity is is decreasing, right? And if you take this idea of food as an institution or maybe a business as an institution, you know, you have companies from Japan who've lasted centuries. Yeah. Right. So I, I guess you know, what do you think you need to do to? Because I guess you you mentioned 10 years, but I, I'm hoping multi generational. So maybe 20, 30, 40 years, right? What do you need to do to make that happen then? Um, so the key word that comes to my mind is legacy, right? Mm-hmm. Man, I'm talking about legacy as if like, if I retire, it's a legacy for, I don't know, grandchildren to take yeah. over. No, we don't mean it by that, but yeah, we mean yeah, yeah. legacy in terms of uh, operational legacy, culture yeah. being a legacy that we can pass down. Um, as we grow in size, it should be intentional, that it should be enhancing the cultural legacy of how we do things. Mm-hmm. You know, something as simple as running pre-service post-mortem meetings or even, mm-hmm. um, you know, apart from it being a pandemic, but if it was not a pandemic, um, it's eating together. Yes. So our, our restaurant team sits down and actually eats together as mm-hmm. well. We found that a great ritual and making sure these rituals sort of get passed down not through generations. Keeping tradition, essentially. Keeping, keeping traditions. Essentially. When you talk about culture, that's Ooh. what it is, right? Tradition, right? Yeah. Um, so the, the more yeah, yeah, yeah. traditions you have in your company that supports towards your goal, the higher your chance of it being more sustainable. So that's kind of how we're, we're trying to look at it. And we talked about this earlier um, with this idea of old world wine, new world wine. And now we're talking about tradition. And actually those old bakeries we see in Europe all based on tradition. Yeah. But there's this element in the world where, because we're so global now, we're, we're, you know, ideas and foods spread faster. And what we do is we take it and adopt it to innovate. So how do you balance between disrespecting tradition, losing the cultural aspects and institution elements to balancing growth and innovation and change? Man, that was a rough question. (laughs) Uh, I think when we talk about innovation and change, it needs to start off with a respect and understanding of tradition first. Define respect because people will take something and, you know, smack it around and they say, I, re- I respect it, right? You yeah. Know, but it, the, the people who are looking at it 
who from a traditional standpoint are like, you know, F you, you know? Yep. Right? So a good analogy, for, uh, not an analogy, a good example for me when is when we work with our cooks, our really young cooks. Okay. I mean, back when we were at that age, we didn't even have Instagram yet, which is a daily part of the lives of the restaurant <laughs> yes. marketing team who's staring at IG all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but prior to that, you didn't have Instagram, right? So yeah. can you imagine what you knew as a cook would be whatever came from your rusty old cookbooks or whatever yeah, you're yeah. cooking in your restaurant? And you build fundamentals through an understanding of how things are done. Yeah. Now, it's a bit short-circuited because I can look at Instagram and go, man, I like that dish. I yeah, want to cook that and dish. And then you do it. <laughs> but you have no idea of the origins of that dish. Okay. You have no idea of what the traditions of it is being made. True. So we can really tell when a cook pushes out food that is seen as different. Um, I won't use the word innovative yet because if it's a dish where we try and we go, oh my gosh, this is a tasty dish. Mm. You have to understand that when we taste food, it also is about a palate that's familiar to you. Yeah. So if you've tried something that tastes good, but you have no idea what flavors these are, you can't identify it, chances are you won't say the word delicious. You'll say the word interesting. Mm, yeah, okay. So that's when you know yeah, that yeah. you've not hit the mark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so when it comes to respecting tradition from a cookery standpoint, yeah. we look at it as how strong are your fundamentals and how do you present it in a way where it's contemporary yet familiar to, mm, okay. to people and they go, okay, I understand that. That's different, mm-hmm. but that's delicious. I want to have that again, mm-hmm. right? So there's a real balance between Tricky. those two. You're walking a fine line, essentially. Correct. And, and we, we weren't able to articulate that very yeah. well because when we used to cook, like when I used to be in the kitchen cooking, it maybe seemed intuitive, but because I couldn't articulate it, I didn't understand what it meant. It was just like, I could do it. Why can't you do it? Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which was a really bad way to start in terms of yeah. leading or nurturing people. Yeah. But then when, when if you leave, if it's too macro-managed, if you leave them just to their own devices, you'd get dishes that would just be floating around with like no real bearings and roots. Mm. Um, so you always start off with saying, okay, if you're going to create a dish, what do you understand about that dish? Or what do you understand about, um, you know, the background or the backstory yeah. behind it? I think narratives are really important. And bringing that, and that has to come forward into the actual product, the food. Yeah. And, and like they, by, by seeing, smelling and tasting and even hearing, right? Uh, if, if you're familiar with the traditional aspects, it should be present and you don't feel that it's disrespectful, I guess. Yeah. But that's very challenging. Yeah. yeah. So that's why, like, when it comes to us stretching our team's ability, when it comes to, say, again, case in point is cooking, right? Yeah. Uh, coming out of specials. We try and follow on the lines of something that if I was a, a guest coming in to dine at the restaurant, it would click to me and go, mm. why didn't I think of that? Yeah. Right? Mm. Or, Man, I feel like I've had that as a child before, and yeah. I have I haven't had that now. And wow, this is a contemporary way of it being yeah. done. So we work on dishes where um, either the the ingredients are familiar to your palate, so whether it's using Japanese ingredients, mm-hmm. um, uh, or whether it's going back to nostalgia, right? Yeah. Food that you used to have as as a kid, and you go, I don't see that anymore. So at Universal Big House, it was deliberate that we would just make donuts with nothing in them but just sugar coated. Yeah. 
And to our surprise, people left it out and go, oh my gosh, this is the best donut in the world. <laughs> yeah. And we're like, really? But why? Mm-hmm. Why do you think that? Mm-hmm. And it was because there was this connection that people mm-hmm. had. So tradition is all about connection first. Yeah. And then okay. pushing forward, it's yeah. about how do you build it forward? Like a Ratatouille moment, I guess. Yeah, right? exactly. The, we, we talked about Souvenir as well. But watch the cartoons. It's, it's, it's yeah. A, yeah. You're essentially respecting through this idea of Ratatouille moment, huh? Yeah. Okay, essentially, um, I, I I peruse Reddit sometimes and, and food Reddits, and I, I come across videos of Gordon Ramsay demanding recipes from locals, and it, it seemed to anger a lot of people. I never really personally found Gordon Ramsay offensive, and I kind of liked his short YouTube videos. Is he disrespecting the food world on one end? That's one camp, right? Or is he just really just doing his thing and being respectful and modern about it? <laughs> I think it's in the context of him um, engaging with an audience that would laugh at at the action of it. Mm. I I don't personally think it is a case of him trying to appropriate and be disrespectful, correct. right? Yeah. yeah, I mean that that's his persona on TV all the time, right? Yeah, he go on and like stare at people, and yeah, it's great for TV. Yeah. But in a real professional kitchen. That actually did exist in the 1990s. Yeah, yeah. Um, doesn't exist anymore, and it's not relevant in today's workplace. At least, in my opinion, from what I've observed, yeah, yeah. even like chefs that you know I admire and, and uh, know about, and what gave me the inspiration and say I want to be in the restaurant industry, they've evolved together with the times, mm-hmm. right? Um, and you know, to to be relevant with you know different generations of cooks. That's kind of what has has to happen as well. So you you don't mind if people going around taking recipes and then just adopting it for the sake of media, and that's so that's a good, that's a that's a good thing. Uh, I disagree with it if I would have to do it, okay. but I think because with let's say Gordon has that clout, yeah, right? Yeah, he does, yeah. and I mean he's leveraging it to engage with his audience and mm-hmm. those peripheral audiences that maybe don't engage with him. Tend, may tend to disagree, mm, which rightly mean. so. I see what you mean. Okay, yeah, um, so that's a way of putting it. That's for me. That's how I would. How I would yeah, I mean, it's neither like necessarily wrong or right. I guess it's just how it is, right? Correct. And yeah. and but let's let's be real too. You could give a single recipe to all our cooks, and you laugh at how one person would do mm. it, and then you'd be you'd be admiring. Wow, this person reads mm. it differently, right? True. Um, and a lot of the cooks who are probably doing it are just yeah. doing it for fun, for the fun yeah. of it. Um, I think it's also knowing what the intention is about. So let's let's flip this conception of institution, uh, food as an institution. Right? We talked about long-lasting businesses and companies. Is McDonald's an institution? Yeah, I'd say yeah, so. You'd say so. And what, what other institutions do you think about for food that you would look up to then? Uh, I would look up to businesses that have been around a long time, and it could stretch as far as the. The, the chicken rice hawker stall down the road. So, uh, so yeah, so even like a hawker stall could be an institution. Yeah. 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 Anything that engages its audience it doesn't necessarily mean that we either like that kind of food or, or what, but the concept is of resonates with the particular community and constantly mm. builds on that. But does the, does the institution have to include the physicality of the hawker, the person and the food? Cause it feels like almost f- the dishes are an institution in, in Asia. Right. Yes. They, they, people will specialize in that, and people go around to those one shops, even though there's multiple shops. But it's like yeah. a dish is an institution. Um, I'd say that people behind it are what drives. The okay, so you would. I would. I would to make me, an institution, you need the people. Yeah. yeah. I think narratives are really important, 
right? If you like a place just because of the dish, that means you just like the food, right? Yeah. Um, and over time, maybe dining there gives you special memories. And I think that's something that McDonald's does a really great job at. It's mm, they, at they least, get you when you're young. <laughs> they get at you when you're young yeah. with those happy meals, and that's where you go celebrate as a kid with your friends, right? Which is very interesting. At the time. Yeah, because yeah. well, it's actually a very modern thing because the first McDonald's from Malaysia opened opened in 1982, 85, or something right. like this. So it's only kind of our generation. Yep. who kind of grew up with that, at least for in America, it was there longer. So yeah. I mean, for me, of course, it was a given that was always there. Um, but it means just for the Malaysian generation we see now, it actually has become an institution in a more modern sense, I guess. Correct. Yeah. Now, how the current generation, um, let's say, okay, if it was my daughter's first time at McDonald's, I don't know how that would inform her mm. as, uh, okay, this is a great institution, institution <laughs> to come to, right? But... But it's forming the memories, like you said. Forming though. memories, yeah. right? So yeah. the 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 institution that forms memory the best is the one that kind of mm. wins in terms of longevity. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right, so I want to go to the closing few questions. Um, recently on episode 12, I had a conglomerate and they're starting this new concept of a food accelerator, kind of like a tech accelerator where they help new restaurants um, kind of get started. What, what are your thoughts around that? Because when you started, you had nothing you just maybe had a few friends who were also on the same journey Mm. um would you recommend people to kind of search out accelerators now or do you think people should be doing it themselves Uh, i think accelerator is a good thing so long as there's a culture of support Mm -hmm. that goes into it yeah when we first opened shop um renee from burger lab was the one who sort of found it and said, hey, we have to have this thing called Good Food Alliance. Yes. <laughs> At that time, I thought, I was like, what on earth is this? But actually, you know, on, on hindsight, it's brilliant because yeah. let's imagine six years ago when we opened shop and we're like, oh, damn, we've got some plumbing issues. Who do we call? Mm. Let's call Mr. Tan. His name is on the tree over there. There's plumbing, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. let's just give him a call. Yeah. Um, and this was only just six years ago when this happened. Correct, correct. Um, the, the the restaurant industry was operating in a very fragmented territorial yes. way as compared to what you have right now where you know we have the ability to um, sort of connect with peers within the industry on the same level yeah. so we could talk about sales we could talk about HR issues yeah. and just to have we go back that community is so integral to how we do things so if the accelerator program provides that kind of community right and up front then i'd say there's more wins than losses yeah essentially it has to broadly serve a greater purpose other than unto itself yeah and then it would kind of make sense you would kind of recommend it because it does grow the scene adds more resources and trains people accelerates people to be on the same level to hopefully get a more vibrant f&b scene correct okay uh do you mentor other food entrepreneurs what is that like wow um I don't know we I I don't know whether the word is do we directly mentor food entrepreneurs mm. but every time uh, a, a, t- a new recruit joins our company I mm. look at them straight in the face and said what's your ambition or like what, what are you aspiring to mm. uh, those who come and work with us a high degree of them actually say they want to open their own restaurants of course so we go great and I just stated up front looks like you could either be a future business partner or you could be going on to open your own place. Oh, nice. Okay. And our job here is to make sure that you learn from this experience that you have with us yeah. and that 
you wrestle through with resilience and learn about how to up your game and working yeah. in a team sport so that when you open your own place, you know the dynamics of it mm-hmm. all. We've been fortunate because actually um, after, in, in the six years that we've opened, I think we've had like three or four restaurants come out from cooks who've worked at us, yeah. uh, with us. Um, and I'm hoping that's because we've indirectly nurtured them because we do mentor as much as we can yeah. through our leads. Um, everyone who works in in this place, and mm-hmm. to at least give meaning to that. Yeah. So we're quite happy that you know we have more options of other places to dine out, but we're not in any official program where like <laughs> mentor. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you're doing it every day as a leader, as your job, and for your your your, your companies and your group essentially. I I think that's yeah. an obligation. Yeah, yeah. And I guess that's an interesting point that you know someone new coming in says uh, you can be a potential business partner. And here's here's a concept from the tech world: they they create a little stock option pool for the employees, yeah, because uh, they they can't pay them salary actually. But that aligns them further. Have you considered building stock option, make it, make them actual official partners in a small capacity, less than a percent, even one percent if they're really good? We have thought about things like that. Uh, we haven't reached that kind of stage yet because a lot of the young people who join us who aspire to open their own place technically could go and open their place tomorrow if they wanted to mm-hmm. the opening a restaurant or any fmb concept in malaysia the barriers of entry is extremely low yes it's not like you're in new york in the cbd area where if you had to open a place you have to sign a lease for 10 years and yeah, yeah. you've got to get a vc behind your back to support this yeah, yeah, yeah. in malaysia i could have a hundred grand pop, go. go and open that place up yeah so stock sh- options don't seem as viable here or doesn't seem to me as attractive here mm. um, unless we've built so much credibility that you'd be second guessing why you're opening a place yourself. Well, um, well let, let me flip the conception on its head because what you can do is keep an open mind. Uh, you give them a very small amount, but you make them w- get it over a longer period of time, four years, five yeah. years. And if they do open their own po- own their own business, you get something out of it too. Maybe you get a stake in theirs. Correct. Right. So if you could think of it that way, it, it helps grow the ecosystem, promotes uh, entrepreneurship and, you know, maybe more future uh, entrepreneurs in the space. Exactly. Yeah. And um, I mean, Asia is our managing partner here. Yeah. Probably went down that route. So she's got a, a chunk of share there. She's now co-founder of, yeah, of the uh, Universal of the Bakery. And yeah. I'm open to however she wants to run and grow the company and Very good. eat more bigger slice of the pie go ahead right yeah as long as the value is increasing you get, yeah everyone gets more right yeah. yeah and and that's how we should be looking at it so i think the opportunity is definitely there um and for a lot of young people out there on your listeners if they happen to be i want to open a restaurant or i want to be a cook and i want to you know one day run my place i think it's important for them to also know that okay there's definitely an opportunity that in fact if you don't realize it the fastest way to becoming a business owner is actually in in hospitality fastest way of management is in hospitality mm. you take two years and you're in management or you're managing people yeah right uh, whereas in a lot of the other industries well, where long time. <laughs> technical competence is of a much higher level yeah um you you don't jump straight into there you're right? talking something like engineering doctors, engineering yeah my wife is a doctor yeah and Half the time, I don't know what she's saying technically <laughs> with the work. Yeah. And whatever we do seems extremely trivial compared to that on a yeah. day-to-day basis. But yeah, that, that, that's that, you know, technical mm-hmm. expertise um, to a certain level um, mm-hmm. makes it harder to go into management. Yeah. And in F&B, it's, it's much easier. Much easier. And it's a great way for a young person to get 
to get actual leadership experience faster, which I think is just very critical to have that exposure. So you Correct. have different viewpoints and know how to develop your career. Yeah. Yes, because it's very much a people business, right? Yeah. You work with multiple uh, personalities with a variety of background at Tayman Apron Universal Big House. 40% of our staff are foreign and from six different countries, mm. you know, and that alone tells you how diverse the team is. And if you're going to learn management, and when we talk about management, we're talking about managing people, essentially, we're not talking about managing projects or whatever, yeah. not yeah. Um, that this is the real school for it. That's true. So you've developed as a leader. Where are you? What is next on your entrepreneurial journey? Wow. Um, I think for me, the important point is that we are able to create um, vertical career paths for our team over here. Mm -hmm. um, as much as I like to say the easiest answer is, yeah, I would just want to grow and go with the store. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Stuff like that. But you can't grow unless you have the leads in place. The right foundation. Mm. So... Um, so much of my journey now as a restauranter is also focused on the, the the internal team and figure out ways how to actually build them up as leaders. Mm -hmm. Also to make sure that we create a space that's credible for talent to come in and say, okay, I want to have a career in, mm -hmm. in, in, in the restaurant industry. I mean, right now, parents are probably more open to their children saying, I want to pursue a career in culinary arts or management or hospitality. You think so? Is that what you're seeing? I'm seeing a lot more, at least with the applicants. They're like, yeah, <laughs> my parents are like fully, uh, wholly oh, supported. Really? Interesting. I'm like, really? Wow, that's pretty wow, good. The world's changing. We're getting old. <laughs> yeah. Whereas, you know, 10 years ago, 12 years, 15 years ago. No, no, no. Doctor, engineer. Correct. <laughs> yeah. So. Okay. So really focusing on the people. Of course, on the horizon, there's always opportunities you're exploring. And it's very clear from our conversations, you've already thought about these things. And But, you know, it's, I think it's like you said, getting the right foundation, um, making sure that the restaurant can continue pushing through the pandemic. Yeah. And I guess, you know, as the opportunities come up, you, it sounds like you'll be very you're ready for it. I, I hope we are. And yeah. Hope team is. So for my last question, um, in your opinion, do you think, you know, having the heart, you know, and really wanting to do it and the experience is enough? Or do you need more? Um, well, I think that's a central part of why you do what you do. That's almost like your North Star. So you got to have that. Uh, but is it strong enough that it helps build resilience? Mm. And, and I think that's the most important thing because you may be passionate about it, but when things go south, are you still passionate about it? Yeah. Right? So, And it's also not looking at it as either you're passionate or not. That's very black and white. Yes. Right? But looking at how much of a desire or hunger do you have for it mm. that makes you want to push through. I think that this kind of direction applies for all entrepreneurs out there, yes. right? Everyone's seeking to push that ceiling of growth because at every single part of your growth stage in your company, you're going to reach that ceiling. It's always a step up. Mm. And it's figuring how much your appetite is, uh, and that's why your level of ambition. So I think to just say to have the heart and, and passion for it and mm. is only talks about one aspect of it. You yeah. know, it's learning how to build, uh, that grit to overcome challenges, um, yeah. learning how to have uh, the stamina, the tenacity, say, okay, this is what we want to go for. And no matter what happens, yeah. right? 
how do you adapt and find ways to grow to that? Yeah. And that the challenge is as you keep stepping up, your team gets bigger mm. and it's easy if it's just you. But when you have a team, then your role as a leader comes into it. How do you inspire them? How do you motivate them? Yes. Perfect. All right. I think we've learned a lot today. Completely went off script, but we covered almost everything I wanted to talk about. Uh, thank you for sharing and thank you for your time. Thanks, Alex. It was a pleasure. Welcome. Hey, listeners. Thank you for listening to another episode of EOA. As usual, if you found this episode insightful or valuable, please share it to your friends and family. Let us know your feedback at entrepreneursofasia.com slash podcasts. I'm not sure how to close here. Marcus and I discussed many topics that perhaps would point every aspiring and current entrepreneur to see how Marcus thinks about his business, the ecosystem, personally and introspectively, the community at large, and the value it creates when combined. Holistically, there's a powerful framework in between the lines born of hardship and love. I believe any entrepreneur would appreciate what Marcus had to share. Thank you to the listeners for your continued support and listens. It means the world to me. I look back to seeing you here for next week's episode. Until next time.